It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Shimon. It wasn't even Lydia as you walked and talked with her from Philippi to Thessaloniki. At the moment that it happened, you weren't sure what it was. But it made sense. It was as if you, Cassius, were standing there, listening to the impassioned teacher's And slowly, this hard, shell-like casing, something like scales, began to melt away from your skin. And you saw, for perhaps the first time, that you were not your own. And left standing there, was Cassius. A warm concoction of joy and love began to swirl deep inside his belly and his head swam with thoughts of of guilt that was being washed away. Cassius had since seen that his hatred of the Jewish family, his insolence toward his contemporaries, his insistence on getting to the temple to worship all of these pieces of stone and stick made him guilty and deserving of punishment and death. If it were true that what Jesus from Nazareth did was take upon his own shoulders that very guiltiness so that a family would be built. Then he wanted in. Cassius wanted to align himself and his life with a god of that kind of strength and power, who had won the war that needed to be won, and all other wars seemed now but mere childishness to Cassius. It was then. It was there. It was in this quiet moment of desperate contemplation in the town of Thessaloniki, where Cassius's heart, mind, and strength now belonged to the God of Israel. But that night, as Cassius rushed back to the domas that they were staying in in Thessaloniki, he burst through the door, and his fellow teachers had been rushed out under cover of night. And all that was left was a still, small circle of Christian worshippers praying. Cassius didn't know what else to do that night. So he sat down beside them and began to pray.
Hey, Bible Knots. You know, something I should have said at the beginning of the epistolatory episodes was that if you were to go onto the Bible Unbound YouTube page, and if you were to search for the complete story of Paul, and if you were to watch that video in full, then likely, likely these podcast episodes would kind of come alive. They would make a lot more sense because you can see where Paul was doing his missionary work and what happened there and how he got there and why it all began to take place. I just think that what I learned in that video and I think that what it teaches other people provides a lot of really good context for these episodes of the podcast especially today's episode, because in order to understand some of the history surrounding the letters to Timothy and Titus, you should know that Timothy and Paul met on Paul's first missionary journey in Lystra. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, let me remind you, and you should go watch that video. Lystra did not take too kindly to the missionaries Paul and Barnabas, and they were met with some violent opposition from the authorities in Lystra stoning Paul almost to death. <laughs> Legend has it that Timothy would have been standing right there alongside of Paul and Barnabas and witnessed the stoning. Timothy then later joins Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey. It is here where the gang of Christian missionaries is driven out of Thessalonica by night to the city of Berea, and then a few days later, they're driven from Berea to Athens because of this violent opposition that keeps following them. Paul then writes to Timothy and Titus years later on what many scholars would call Paul's fourth missionary journey, which we know very little about, to be honest, because it's not recorded in the book of Acts, it's pieced together from other epistles. It was a period of time of about two years where Paul skirted around the Aegean Basin after his first imprisonment in Rome, visiting churches like Corinth, Philippi, and Ephesus. Paul's life is nearing the end here. In just about one year, Emperor Nero will summon Paul's arrest and have him beheaded in front of a jeering crowd of Romans. This is when Paul writes the letters to these leaders. It is in this state of his life. So when Paul opens his letter to Timothy in about 62 AD, and he reminds Timothy to suffer well for the gospel, we can only imagine what images Timothy might have conjured in his mind. Perhaps it was the first time he met Paul, having the life beaten out of him for the sake of the gospel. Or maybe it was the missionary journey with Paul constantly on the run from robbers, constantly on the run from opposition, other violent threats. Or maybe, just maybe, Timothy even sees Paul now, the Paul who's writing on the brink of arrest and death. By this point in Paul's life, he had wisened up to the ways of the world, and he is instructing two pastors, Timothy and Titus, in what Paul believes is coming to oppose their church. Namely, that false teaching, like that which had taken over the churches in Galatia or Colossae, is likely going to break in. The letters to Timothy and Titus seem to be preventative, rather than retrospective. And Paul has good reason to suspect this coming, because not only has false teaching come into other churches up to this point that Paul had planted, but also because the areas that Timothy and Titus are preaching in are likely to spur this kind of false teaching. 
Ephesus, you'll remember, is the city that sits at the western edge of what in Paul's day was called Asia Minor, but today would be Turkey. It was a port city that had a knack for making small stone statues of Greek and Roman gods called idols, and then they would sell those around the marketplace for profit. And when Paul arrives to this city on his second missionary journey, he stays there for nearly three years and takes special care to tend to the people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and it takes the city by storm. <laughs> the people of the city are so overwhelmed by Paul's message and what it means for their trade that they completely flip out. The city combusts when Paul leaves. Riots break out. They drag the missionaries to this coliseum for trial. And there's such a commotion that the scriptures say that the crowd doesn't even know why they gathered. They just did. Because crowds. This is the city that Timothy had been instructed to tend to. A city known for violent threats, combustible marketplaces, and a city dear to Paul's heart. Paul had good reason to believe that false teachers were coming to indoctrinate the church at Ephesus. Paul believes that good doctrine that is formed on the basis of Tanakh and the writings of the apostles will inevitably lead the church to healthy, godly living. Whereas bad doctrine, Paul warns, will lead to perverse, corrupt living, a corrupt church body. Well, Paul then reminds Timothy of the gospel message, saying that the good news is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul takes special care to note how if he can be reconciled back to God, then anyone can be reconciled back to God. By rejecting that good news, Paul says, by denying that the saving grace of Jesus Christ covers any and all sins, some members of the Ephesus church have already completely destroyed their spiritual lives. Paul urges Timothy to pray for and encourage all of the believers under his care so that this type of thing doesn't happen again. He says that the members of the Ephesian church should pray also so that the members stop arguing and quarreling with one another. And likewise, Paul says women should dress appropriately so that the members of the church stop arguing and quarreling with one another. This is also one of those passages, by the way, that a lot of churches have done a lot of things with. And because I have no idea how your church handles this passage, I'm just going to go right ahead and say that given the textual content of this passage in 1 Timothy 2, we can go ahead and assume safely that the women dressing appropriately and the women learning quietly in submission thing is likely a reference to some specific issue of the Ephesian church because it's been causing quarreling among people. But it is worth noting, the passage says that women should learn quietly. They should not teach or exercise authority over a man. This is likely in reference to the fact that women could not read and therefore could not properly interpret the Tanakh and the writings of the apostles of the time. And since false teachers had come in and taken away Hymenaeus and Alexander, that's earlier in the chapter. Women, members of the Ephesian church, were likely learning how to interpret the scriptures from people other than the elders of the church, which had been leading to these false doctrinal conclusions. So when Paul says, I do not permit women to exercise authority over a man, it's most likely that Paul is trying to have all of the members of the Ephesian church learn the doctrines of the church from the elders alone. Men who had spent their entire lives steeped 
in understanding Tanakh and the gospel that had been given to them. Does that make sense? It's a different cultural moment. Women couldn't read. Women couldn't interpret Tanakh. So men were put in charge of the church. They could interpret Tanakh. They would give good doctrinal spiritual advice. It's most likely that Paul is trying to prevent false teaching from entering the church rather than making some theological claim about women. Now, for those of you who have the passage in front of you and who are super confused by the Adam and Eve bit, then I encourage you to reach out by becoming a patron on Patreon or by looking up some commentaries that I will put in the description because time does not allow us to tackle that one. <laughs> it makes sense then, though, that Paul would go on to talking about the qualifications for elders after having made the case that the members of the church, including the women, should learn from the elders in place at the church in Ephesus. Paul then closes out the letter to Timothy by addressing some really specific church problems that he's been seeing. He does this for a couple of chapters. He talks about caring for widows, caring for orphans, how to properly rebuke people in the church using scripture. He talks about Gnosticism, which we've definitely covered on this podcast before, but just in case you're new to the podcast, it just means hidden knowledge. So people are professing that salvation comes through a hidden ancient knowledge, and these people should be regarded as false teachers. Gnostics would also profess that in order to obtain this knowledge, you needed to lead this kind of ascetic lifestyle that denied yourself completely so you couldn't get married, you couldn't eat certain foods, and Paul is addressing all of this in his letter to Timothy. He says that God made both for the enjoyment of human beings. After sending off these encouraging instructions to the church in Ephesus, Paul then writes the letter to Titus. Chronologically, it's next. Although the book appears after 2 Timothy, we are going to take a look at Titus first, because chronologically. And it addresses largely the same concerns as Paul's first letter to Timothy. Titus is another one of Paul's contemporaries and has been sent, or has chosen, to plant a church on the island colony of Crete. Crete has played quite the role in human history, and in Grecian history, actually. Crete was said to have these healing powers given to it by the god Zeus, who, coincidentally, was born on the large island. It was also the birthplace of the shamanistic philosopher Epimenides, who claimed to have met Zeus himself, and legend holds it that Epimenides lived to be nearly 300 years old. He once wrote this theological poem, and in that poem, Epimenides said, quote, They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. Which is incredibly interesting, because it was an argument for Zeus's divine immortality and sovereignty. Fashioning a tomb for Zeus, or Epimenides is claiming that socially they killed the god. They, they claimed that he was powerless and mortal and thus making him impotent. But Epimenides was determined that Zeus was immortal, and that Zeus was powerful because Epimenides claimed that in Zeus, the Grecians moved and lived and had their being. You can see why the New Testament writers would have been so attracted to this philosopher who discerned the divine nature of God without ever having actually known him. 
This is why Titus has his work cut out for him, though. The clever quote by Paul remains a double entendre. One, Cretans do not believe in a powerful enough God. Two, they don't have the moral character to live out ethical lives, and so Paul quotes, Cretans are always liars. So Paul here encourages Titus to recruit members of the society that are above reproach, that not only lead ethical lives, but that also teach sound doctrine in accordance with Tanakh and the teachings of the apostles, which would have begun to be codified in the gospel books by this point in Paul's life. They should teach this gospel of grace to promote sound living and continue to spur the name of Jesus around the Grecian island of Crete. After Paul sends the letter to Titus, he is arrested. It's probably about 64 AD, and he writes one last short letter to Timothy as an encouragement to remain steadfast under trial, reminding him that though Timothy has experienced the trials and the hardships of life, that God does not give us a spirit of timidity and fear, but God has empowered his people to live faithfully. Paul, on the brink of martyrdom. The last letter to Timothy is personal, it's warm, it's courageous. Paul assures Timothy that to do what he is doing is unlocking the key to their faith in Jesus. To tell others in word and in deed that there is a path to salvation. Being a Christian, Paul says to Timothy, is like a warrior fighting in a great cosmic battle. Or perhaps like a gardener carefully planting seeds around the earth. Or perhaps it's like an athlete who may become exhausted and wearied by his labors, but will one day finish the race. Or it's like being a servant who patiently endures the work that has been set out for him in gentleness and in humility. Paul says our encouragement our surety, our teaching, our correction comes from the scriptures. But our assurance, our hope, our worship comes from Jesus. Paul sees the ancient words of the Tanakh as pointing entirely and with finality to Jesus who is the Christ, and to not lose sight of the hope that can be found in those words. Build the foundation of the church and the faith of the members of the church on these words, Paul says. And to Timothy, he cannot fail, even when he's most afraid. At that the letters to Timothy and Titus fade out, and with them, the Apostle Paul.
You know, throughout the scriptures that we've talked about, reaching even all the way back to Genesis, we get a picture of what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. Well, actually, the role of the leader given to us is given to us in three major portraits. Remember, a prophet, a priest, and a king. These three roles are not to be taken lightly by anyone who is given them. They are not to be accepted with flippancy. They are major roles in the kingdom of God. The prophet speaks the word of God on behalf of God to the people of God, while the priest leads people into the pure presence of God, and the king is to dictate the spiritual and political disposition, and ultimately health, of the people of God. But there's this strange thing that happens to the people of God after the ascension of Jesus. A new role comes up in the New Testament that the apostles continually refer to as pastor. Well, actually, it's not a new role at all. It's the combination of all three major Old Testament leadership roles rolled into one. And it is no small task. The Greek word for pastor, which I can't pronounce, pomian, pomian, poemian, I don't know. It means shepherd, which is really quite beautiful. And it's a fitting word for this significant role in the body of Christ. It makes sure that whoever steps into this role is not doing so lightly or for power, but rather for service and humility. Make no mistake. There are many churches in our modern day that confuse teachers with pastors. The pastor is the person who is shepherding the flock. And they are responsible for speaking the word of God on behalf of God, for leading people into the presence of God, and for dictating the spiritual and doctrinal health of the church as well. This is why Paul is so insistent that Timothy and Titus find ethical, moral men who lead upright and irreproachable lives to lead the church. It's no small task. But as we follow Timothy and Titus, we also see that this task is, is of the utmost importance to the church as a whole. Not only is it difficult, but it's necessary because it is key to the Christian faith. That, that faithful and sound persons would lead people to the path of salvation, despite the work being grueling, thankless, and often dangerous. Luckily, Paul writes these letters to men who fail. Paul knows this. His purpose is not to make sure that they're living good and moral lives, else the gospel will not go forth. His purpose in writing these letters is to show them that these men, that Timothy and Titus and pastors throughout history, have been grafted into a narrative established thousands of years prior. God will accomplish his plan with or without them. And these letters remind us that, thankfully, pastors get to be a part of this grand narrative. And hopefully, Paul would say, hopefully, they act like it. Thanks so much. This was Bible Inbound. We'll see you next time.